Bangor Worldwide has been promoting and supporting World Mission for over 85 years. Our podcasts are free of charge. You can find out more about us at www.worldwidemission.org. We hope you enjoy this talk. Mark's Gospel, I invite you to turn there. Uh, Jose Mourinho, not the one from last night, is, is a miserable sinner. I know that because the Bible says that, and I share that with him. Alec Ferguson was also a miserable sinner, is, and yet he was a far better miserable sinner than this particular one. And uh, what happened last night was well-deserved. And putting these things behind us, we move on. (laughs) Verse 40 of Mark chapter 1. And a leper came to him, imploring him, and kneeling, said to him, If you will, you can make me clean. Moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and touched him, and said to him, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him, and he was made clean. And Jesus sternly charged him and sent him away at once and said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest, and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded for a proof to them. But he went out and began to talk freely about it and to spread the news, so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town, but was out in desolate places, and people were coming to him from every quarter." And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down on the bed, let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, My son, your sins are forgiven. Now, some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And Jesus, immediately perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier? to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. Uh, This is the word of the Lord. And the three Anglicans said, thanks be to God. That's it. All right. I'd just like to acknowledge my Anglican friends here. The Church of Ireland is very well represented, I'm sure. Father, we bow before your word. We come humbly. We come as children. 
Uh, we want to receive your word. Help us, guide us, guard my mind, my thoughts, our responses. Fulfill your purposes, we pray, for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, yesterday we uh, looked at Matthew and uh, considered something of what we said was the tone or the manner in which Jesus was going to exercise his ministry as he moved amongst people. And this morning, as we come to Mark, uh, we're thinking in terms of essentially the message that he had come to proclaim. And we need be in no doubt about this because Mark tells us at the very beginning in chapter 1 and verse 14 that after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, and what was he doing? He was proclaiming the gospel of God. That's what he was doing. And he was saying to the people, the time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. That is pretty straightforward. Jesus is saying that all of the lines that have been running through the prophets in the Old Testament are now finding their fulfillment in him. Uh, the reason that the kingdom is present is because he is the king, and entry into that kingdom is by repentance and faith. And as Mark pursues the story and does so with great uh, rapidity, uh, Jesus, we're told, calls his first disciples. There's the healing of a man with an unclean spirit. There's the healing of many. And uh, he is uh, off for the night, as it were. And then first thing in the morning, rising very early, verse 35, while still dark, he had gone out to a desolate place. Now, Mark tells us that this was a matter of some consternation, some intrigue to his followers. And they found him, and in finding him, we're told that they said to, the, to Jesus, everyone is looking for you. Now, the, the, the inference is clearly this. Uh, Jesus, uh, everything has gone uh, really, really well in the kickoff of this thing. Uh, this story about you being the king and the fulfillment and uh, repentance and so on, uh, the crowds have gathered, and people are absolutely fascinated, and uh, everyone is looking for you, and I think we would uh, be safe to add, and we think it'd be a very good idea if we just stayed here for a while because it's going so well. I mean, these are the same characters who on the Mount of Transfiguration said, why don't we just build three huts and spend a wee while here? They weren't any further on by that point than they were here. And how staggering it was for them when Jesus said, in response to their, in their direction, everyone is looking for you, and he said, let's go. Well, that doesn't seem to make sense, does it? Let's go to the next towns. Why? That I may preach there also. Now, it's very important to know this. Jesus came proclaiming the gospel of God. His proclamation of the gospel was accompanied by these powerful signs. The disciples say, everyone is now looking for you. It would make sense, apparently, to stay where you are. And Jesus says, no, we're going to go on and to these other towns so that I may preach there also. And here, for that is why I came out. So we don't need to be in any doubt about this. It's absolutely clear. Jesus realizes how possible it was and how possible it is for people to be attracted to Jesus or even the message of Jesus for the wrong reasons. 
people looking to Jesus for that which he has never come to provide. And so it was then, and so it is now, that the material and the bodily benefits were not and are not the things that matter most. That's a very, very important and crucial underpinning point of what we're looking at this morning. The material and bodily benefits that accrued from the gospel were not and are not the things that mattered most. Now, Mark then gives us these two little pictures. First, then, of a leper who is restored, and then a paralyzed man who is forgiven. And in the time we have, I'd like to look at them uh, just in turn. Now, he's gone to these villages, and it is presumably in one of these villages that this encounter with the leper takes place. If you know anything of the condition of leprosy in that day, uh, then you will know that leprosy, a man or a woman who had leprosy, were essentially defined by their disease. It, it, it was a thing that, it, more than any other thing, uh, represented who and what they were. It uh, isolated them from their loved ones, from their family, from their friends. It removed them from the temple. It took them out of the mainstream of culture. They were essentially helpless and pretty hopeless. And the gravity of that condition in the life of such an individual is such that it is no surprise that Mark tells us that when this man came to Jesus, he came to him uh, out of a great sense of need uh, with a, a terrific intensity. The language here is, it helps us to that. A leper came to him imploring him, imploring him. It's a great verb, isn't it? Have you been imploring anybody? I was in the post office this morning. I, I'd like to implore somebody at number six to ring her bell and let me come up there. And now, number four. But the trouble was there were 14 people in front of me, but I couldn't do anything about it. I couldn't implore her. I just was supposed to be learning patience this morning. <laughs> I've noticed dogs are everywhere, like San Francisco. Dogs have taken over Bangor. <laughs> dogs are in restaurants. Yesterday, I failed to get my phone out quick enough to take a picture of a family with their dog, but the dog was not on the floor. The dog had a seat at the table. It was sitting up at the table, right as ninepence, imploring, imploring the waitress to bring it food, apparently. That's a great verb. He implored him. He, he kneeled. He knelt. He came within touching distance of Jesus, and he beseeched him. I think it's pretty clear that the reputation of Jesus had already pre preceded him in this case, and that this man was already convinced of the ability of Jesus to restore him to health and to society. That's what he says to him when he comes to Jesus, if you will you can make me clean. And the man's condition, the compassion of Jesus. Verse 41, Jesus was moved with pity in the ESV. He was filled with compassion in the NIV. And I can't remember what it is in the proper version of the Bible, but there it is. We have it. 
It's a strong word. It's a word that is used with frequency. It's the word that is used, the same word that is used in Luke 15 to describe the response of the father when he sees his son a great way off and he is filled with compassion and he moves towards him. That is the response of Jesus. When he saw the crowds, he was moved with compassion. He was filled with compassion. That was his manner. He saw these bruised reeds. He saw these smoking flaxes. They were everywhere, and it stirred within him in the very core of his being. And the response that is described here is so magnificent in light of the fact that the Pharisees, whom we saw yesterday, were so convinced that uh, ceremonial impurity was uh, to be avoided at all costs, that to touch a leper was absolutely taboo. I mean, they would never want to come close to him at all. So Jesus is a rabbi in every strict sense of the word, and yet he doesn't just come near to this man or allow this man to come near to him. He stretched out his hand and he, and he touched him. I wonder how long it had been since the man had been touched by anyone other than another leper. Who else would touch a leper? No one would touch a leper. So then why does Jesus overturn the ceremonial law? Answer, because the law of love takes precedence over the ceremonial law. And he touches him, and he cures him. Now, there is more to this than, if you like, meets the eye. Because remember, what we have here is a gospel. This is the story of the good news of Jesus that he's come to proclaim, that we've just identified. Uh, the, the gospel writers are giving us—the uh, material is historical, but they're not writing a history. The material is essentially biographical, but they're not writing a biography. What they're providing us with is a gospel. And all that is being provided in the unfolding drama that Mark has for us here is pointing inexorably towards the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, so that that has already taken place by the time these gospels were penned. And Mark wants us to understand that by his touch, he's giving us an indication of the way in which Jesus identifies with men and women in our condition. The way he takes upon himself all of our burdens and all of our predicaments. The way that he takes upon himself all of our sin, all of the punishment that we deserve, and in doing so gives to us what we don't deserve. I think it's Cranfield who, in a wonderful sentence, helps us out here when he says, Jesus' healing miracles are sacraments of forgiveness. The healing miracles of Jesus are sacraments of forgiveness. They are pictures of the reality. That is why the Bible uses, uses leprosy so frequency in, frequently in order to convince us of the real predicament of men and women. The, the, the leper was essentially a dead man as far as society was concerned. And Paul writes to the Ephesians and says, and you were dead. You were dead, but Jesus came and touched you. He writes to the Corinthians, and he says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us in order that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And you will notice that over a period of six or seven weeks, the leprosy finally left the man. No. You look at the Bible, and there it says, and immediately 
Immediately the leprosy left him. You have the reverse of this, don't you, in the Old Testament when Uzziah got a very fat head. After God had helped him in his life, the chronicler says he was glory helped, gloriously helped until he became strong. And when he became strong, he grew proud to his own destruction, and he was immediately leprosy broke out on his head immediately, and he ended his life in that condition. The same God who has power to bring it to the forehead of Uzziah is the same God who has the power to relieve the leper instantaneously and to bring him to this new position. You would think that the man would be ready to do anything that Jesus told him. You've been a leper. No one touches you. You're there by yourself. You're isolated from everybody. You come to Jesus. You implore him. You ask for his help. Jesus helps you. And then look what happens next. And Jesus sternly charged him. Now, some of you are school teachers. You have that kind of eye, that, the stern eye. And, uh, and the, the children know the best of you never have to raise your voice because of that look. My English teacher, Mrs. Walker, never raised her voice. She ruled the place with an iron fist just by the look. And Jesus looked at him and sternly charged him. What did he say to him? See that you say nothing to anyone. What part of that is hard to understand? No part of it, right? See that you say nothing to anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded for a proof to them. Now, we don't need the background on this because we have a Bible. We can read it later. Leviticus chapter 14 will help to fill in the gaps here. What Jesus is doing is in keeping, interestingly, with the ceremonial law. Go and do this, he says. It is the right thing to do, first as an expression of gratitude, then as a provision of evidence that you have actually been healed, then as an avenue of re-entry into the community from which you have been barred. In other words, it is in your own interest to go and do now what I'm telling you to do. The directive was clear, and the man's disobedience is quite staggering. Jesus has already silenced the demons. In verse 33, he healed many who were sick and cast out many demons, and he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. So he has power over the demonic world and shuts them up. <laughs> but he can't shut this guy up. Well, he can, but he didn't. That's a good one for a home Bible study. That'll get you sorted out. You'll be there for an hour and a half. How come the demons were quiet, and he told the man to be quiet, and the man wasn't quiet? But that's not for this morning. That's for you when you're having coffee later on. <coughs> Perhaps we should just make a point in passing, though, uh, that this man's free speech, if you like, proved to be a hindrance rather than a help. Those, those of us who, who are relatively fluent with language live with the notion that somehow or another, as long as we can keep talking, everything will be terrific. You remember Whitfield talked in similar terms about a brother who prayed him into a blessing and then kept praying and prayed him right back out of the blessing again. <laughs> Some of us, as we move around in our personal witnessing, uh, might want to think every so often about the potentiality of eloquent silence, of allowing something of the transforming power of the gospel to be seen in our lifestyle 
as well as heard from our lips. No, this man went out, began to talk freely about it, and to spread the news, and this had an impact on Christ's ministry. You will notice that. A change of strategy, because he was no longer openly able to enter a town, uh, but he was out in desolate places, so a, a change in his strategy, and yet no dip in his popularity, because people were coming to him from every quarter. Well, I'll leave you with that, and we'll move on to what we discover at the beginning of chapter 2 in this record of a paralyzed man who's then forgiven. Mark tells us that Jesus is now back in Capernaum, and the word has got out, and once again, uh, the people are flocking to him. In this particular incident, we're told that there was no room, not even at the door. So, that is a, that's a pack-out. Uh, no more room inside, and it wasn't possible, if you like, even to leave the door open and for a crowd of people just to stand at the door and be a part of what was going on. And what was going on there? Notice that little sentence that finishes chapter 2, and he was preaching the Word to them. He was preaching the Word to them. You know, I know, I know you think that we as preachers uh, keep mentioning this and emphasizing this because it's sort of job security for us. But it isn't. You know, Calvin preached in Geneva every day of the week. The contemporary notion in evangelicalism in the West is that we need less preaching. I wonder, is it not the reverse of the case, that we need more preaching? There's a lot of bad preaching, let's be honest. I've done much of it myself. My wife tells me regularly. But setting that aside for a moment, it is the preaching of the Word. It is God's Word that does God's work by God's Spirit in God's people. And if a church believes that, then they will pray for their pastors, and they will undergird them constantly. They will attend upon the means of grace. They will support them in the gatherings. They will be part and parcel of saying, this matters. And the routine services of a local church, the average routine services conducted under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, have tremendous potential for the gospel. The, 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 the drama and opportunity of special events is that for which we are grateful. But it is in, if you like, the bread-and-butter routine, Sunday by Sunday, opening up of the Scriptures and encouraging the people of God, so that every time the Bible is opened up, it is both evangelism and it is encouragement. And uh, Jesus uh, gathers the crowd around Him, and Mark tells us, and He was preaching the Word to them. You see, the people were fascinated by His miracles. But He was proclaiming to them the kingdom of God. They'd be coming and say, I, I hope He's going to do, I hope he's going to do one, of those, one of those things He does tonight. And Jesus, Jesus is telling them about what it means to know God and His sovereign power and what it means to be cleansed of their sins and what it means uh, to become a member of his family. And then, of course, 
here we move into familiar territory. Some of you are saying, I can't believe we brought Beg all the way from America, and he's doing this story about the man uh, who was let down through the roof. We've been doing that uh, since we were knee-high to a grasshopper, most of us. We've done it in the Sunday school. We give it to the children with pictures. They color it on their way home. Yes, and the pastor has preached on it, and you know it well. It goes something like this. The average message on this passage goes, here was a man, he was in real deep trouble, but he had four friends. Everybody needs friends. These friends were very good friends. I wonder, are you a very good friend? This, these very good friends, they didn't just take him to church. I wonder if you've taken anybody to church lately. No, they took him, and he, they just, and it caught, and so it goes on and on. It's just you're, you're bowing down under the weight of the thing, and you go out the door going, I got to find somebody with a bed or something and, and do something here about the gospel. Is that what the story is here? No, it's the same way that we teach the story of the feeding of the 5,000. By, by and large, in Sunday school, Jesus had a real problem. There was no food. A wee boy saved the day. How would you like to be a wee boy like that and save the day for Jesus? So the whole orientation is on us. This is setting forward the good news of Jesus. These men are not irrelevant, but they're incidental. That is not what Mark is telling us. Now, you say, well, I don't think it's very nice what you said because I'm a Sunday school teacher. Well, I appreciate that, and sometimes I'd say things that aren't nice. But stick with me and see whether I make sense or not, all right? Here, Here they come with their friend. It's clearly impossible. It's impenetrable, the situation. One of them is a bright spark, says, I think the only thing we can do is go down through the roof. That's initiative, and so they do presumably digging their way through a mixture of vegetation and clay, not a roof like some that is around us here, uh, but endeavoring to make an opening that is of significant size, and it would have been significant size, to let this man down uh, on the bed. Not as drastic an action as it would be if we were to do this today, but nevertheless, it is clearly a dramatic intervention. But as we're about to discover the physical aspect of this, the drama of this, if you like, is secondary to the dialogue that is recorded for us. The picture is straightforward. Uh, These folks have done what they've done. You can imagine them looking down into the situation after they've let the man down, ready for Jesus to show them what they came to see. But neither they nor any of that were present were ready for what they heard. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, My son, your sins are forgiven. Now just think about that for a moment. These fellows got up in the morning. There's a guy whose legs don't work. They've never worked. They found out that Jesus is a healer. We'll take you to Jesus. We'll get your legs fixed. It's a deal. Off they go. They get there. We know the story. They let him down. (laughs) Okay. And Jesus says, Son, your sins are forgiven. As my good friend Sinclair Ferguson puts it, they brought the man for a visible change, not for an invisible forgiveness. That's why they brought him. Everybody in the place knew that was why they brought him. That's why he was there. So let me ask you, is the response of Jesus not then 
at least inappropriate, if not entirely irrelevant. Why did Jesus tell the man his sins were forgiven? There's nothing in the story, there's nothing really in the Bible to suggest that the man's illness or any man or woman's illness is directly tied to some particular sin. In fact, the book of Job warns very carefully about equating somebody's suffering with their sin. So we're not able to draw an immediate line between the fact that the man is paralyzed and therefore a sinner. He is both a sinner and he is paralyzed. So why did Jesus say what he said? Well, the reason Jesus said what he said is because he was putting his finger on this man and on every man and woman's greatest need, namely, forgiveness. Forgiveness. Let's just pause for a moment and say, let's suppose we go out into the community today, and we go out and we say, do you have, do you have two minutes? I want to tell you about a man who, who was healed by Jesus. Most people say no, but some may say yes. So you tell them this story. And then say to them, what, what do you think your biggest concern is in life? What is your greatest need? What is it that matters most to you? And we go through an entire list of things. I bet there won't be one person in a hundred who says, well, I think the greatest need in my life is that my sins would be forgiven, that my guilt would be dealt with, that I would be restored to union and fellowship with a living God. Of course. Because you see, men and women today, if they, if they are in search of those kind of answers, are constantly bombarded by the idea that whatever my problem is, the first thing I need to know is not really my problem. It's outside of me. You know, it's because my grandmother dropped me out of my carry cart in Tesco's or something, or, or I was impoverished in some way. They, they, don't worry about that. Just, you don't worry. You're a fine person, Alistair. The problem is out here. Well, what am I supposed to do? Well, then they tell you, that if the, the problem is outside of you, but if you look inside of you, you'll be able to find the answer. Well, I don't know about you, but the last time I looked inside of me, I found more questions and more reasons for disappointment than I found answers and encouragements. Because you see, the gospel is entirely the reverse. The gospel says, sir, madam, the problem is inside of you. And the answer is outside of you. The answer, as Luther said, in many ways, the gospel is all outside of us. In that, our confidence, as Spurgeon says, it's not my faith in Jesus that saves me. It's Jesus. It's not my hold on Jesus that saves me. It's Jesus. And so when Jesus says to this man, your sins are forgiven, he is putting his finger on the epicenter as to why his manner was as it was, because now he's come right up against one of these bruised reeds. No hopeless cases. You say, well, is God disinterested in these things? No. God is not unconcerned about your health or our marriage or our job or our security. But he wants for us, he comes to provide us with the things that matter most. Actually, the thing that matters most. And that is that we would be restored to a relationship with God for which he made us. Now, the response of the religious fellows is straightforward. 
They are not pleased with this at all. They begin their muttering and questioning in their hearts. Verse 6, verse 7, why does this man speak like that? He's clearly blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Now, Mark is making clear, isn't he, that from the very outset of the ministry of Jesus, he is opposed. He's been opposed immediately by the devil in the wilderness. You see that if your Bible is open around verse 12. He's been opposed by the demonic powers in the synagogue, verse 21 and following. But now we find him opposed by those whom we might expect to be on the side of compassion and forgiveness, the religious establishment. Surely these are the people who would know all about forgiveness. Sure, you would expect the religiously orthodox, the people who are the establishment, to be ready with this. But Mark is now telling us, and he's going to go on and tell us throughout the whole gospel, that the stiffest opposition that came to Jesus was—it was never at the beginning of, uh, you know, in Luke's gospel when it says, and the Pharisees were muttering, but the sinners gathered and gladly listened to it. The opposition did not come from those who were confronted with their sin. The opposition came largely from those who had decided that they had the answer, and it did not involve Jesus. It's not that their theology is entirely wrong. They're correct in saying only God can forgive sin. But they've concluded, obviously, that this man must be guilty of blasphemy because they're unwilling to entertain the alternative notion namely that he is none other than the Messiah of God. You see, loved ones, this is really the issue, isn't it? And we'll come to this tomorrow if some of us are still here. But just the, just the, the personal identity of Jesus. Who are we talking about here? We're not talking about a dead Buddha. We're not talking about Muhammad. We're not talking about these figures that have come and gone on the face of history. We're talking about the incarnate Son of God. We're, we're talking about the fact that God has stepped down into time in the person of Jesus. And like them, so today, people will say, well, I can't possibly believe that. So Jesus responds. He perceives in his spirit that they questioned thus within themselves. And so he said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? And before really they have a chance to answer the rhetorical question, he continues, which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed, and walk? Now here we are. We're in the Sunday school class. We've got 10-year-old boys. We've got 12 10-year-old boys in the group, and we're going to have a, we're going to have a poll. And uh, which of you thinks it's easier to say, uh, rise and take up your bed and walk? And which of you thinks it's easier to say your sins are forgiven? Well, I'm not going to turn this into a Sunday school class. I'm not going to ask you for a show of hands, uh, but I'd be interested nevertheless. And in fact, the commentators um, fiddled with this entirely. And eventually, in teaching the Bible, you have to make a decision. That's why I like to say in my congregation all the time, you are sensible people, figure this out for yourselves, which usually means I don't know the answer to this question. <laughs> it's very helpful when the pastor is prepared to do that because it, it, it increases the encouragement for the congregation in his fallibility, and, and it also uh, allows the opportunity for uncharacteristic expressions of humility. But anyway, your sins are forgiven or take up your bed and walk. It's actually easier to say your sins are forgiven. 
Because after all, how could that be verified? Your sins are forgiven. Well, thank you very much. Have a good afternoon. Okay? Who's to say if it's happened or it hasn't happened? It's much harder to say, take up your bed and walk. Because if he doesn't take up his bed and walk, everybody will know. It doesn't work. He couldn't do it. It hasn't happened. So, says Jesus, having said what is easy, your sins are forgiven. Let me now say what is difficult, so that you will know that the Son of Man has power on earth, has the right on earth to forgive sins. See how it all fits. The kingdom, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the good news. And they were all gathering together. It was a huge, big crowd. And he was proclaiming to them the gospel of God. So why would he ever change his tune in this moment? Son, your sins are forgiven. I know some of you wondering about that. So in order that you might know that the Son of Man, which is a, which is a designation of Messiahship, which the rabbis understood because they knew the Old Testament. He's identifying himself here for them. So that you may know the Son of Man has power on earth, has the right to forgive sins, I say to you, take up your bed and walk. Because you see, again, remember that the gospel writer is giving to us the whole story. What appeared easy was to be achieved at great cost, because Jesus was already moving towards the cross to bring the forgiveness that he now proclaims so that people would be able to take up their hearts and voices and sing, you know, praise my soul, the King of heaven, and to his feet uh, thy tribute bring, ransomed, healed, restored, forgiven, who like thee his praise should sing. I often wonder what, what it will be like when we finally get a chance to have conversations with some of these people. Because I really, I really would like to know what it was like when this chap went home. I mean, if he had a wife, presumably, and he had the children, they knew how he had left. Therefore, they would be waiting. I mean, if you think getting your A-level results is something to wait for, I mean, they, the whole place would be on tenterhooks. And then perhaps eventually somebody, somebody says, I think, I think he's back. I think dad's back. And the wife said, on the bed? No, he came up the garden path. Now, I, I want to ask him, what was that like? No, he's going to say it was fantastic. Tell me about it. And, and, and you, you, we have to believe that he would eventually say, you know, at that moment, I thought that was the very, very most important thing. But, you know, I've been here in this new heaven and new earth for a while, and I've got it figured out that the real blessing and the real benefit was the fact that I was restored to fellowship with God, that my sins were forgiven. You remember in Spafford's um, you know, um, it is well with my soul. You know the background to it, the death of the children and so on. I wonder, along with me, have you found it striking that that verse falls right in the middle of that? 
It's very possible to sing that hymn in a fairly sentimental way, especially when we know the background and the, the daughters were drowned in the Atlantic and so on, and it is a telling story. Incidentally, I believe those daughters had been previously converted at a, at a D.L. Moody crusade in Chicago, which Spafford had taken his children to. May it be so. But anyway, right in the middle of that, presumably, if the, the story is accurate, and he, wrote the, he wrote the thing on the ship. He sat in his cabin and wrote, my sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole is nailed to your cross, and I bear it no more. Bless the Lord. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Why? Because that was the really significant thing. Loved ones, that is the significant thing. Let me give to you three brief quotes. First from Smeaton in The Doctrine of the Atonement. Smeaton writes, to convert one sinner from his way is an event of greater importance than the deliverance of a whole kingdom from temporal evil. Translated into contemporary language, the conversion of your next-door neighbor is of greater significance than the eradication of AIDS in sub-Saharan Africa. Booth of the Salvation Army asked at the end of the 19th century what his concern was for the church going forward, a church that he would never really live to see, to which he replied, in answering your inquiry, I consider that the chief dangers which confront the coming century, that's the 20th century, which some of us have lived part through, religion without the Holy Spirit, Christianity without Christ, forgiveness without repentance, salvation without regeneration, politics without God, and heaven without hell. The greatest danger that faces us now in the West is that we, that we have fabricated a theologically vague and harmlessly accommodating story that allows people to sign up for a sham version of what it means to become a follower of Jesus Christ. I have never sung the song that uh, Jonathan introduced us to, but I thought it was really good. In fact, I wrote it down, and uh, I wanted to make sure I remembered it, and then I already lost it. And um, how did that chorus go? Um, I am by him. I am. Where is it there? By grace I am redeemed. Well, it's magic. By grace I am redeemed. By grace I am restored. And now I freely walk into the arms of Christ my Lord. Goodness gracious. That could have been written for the story of the paralytic, couldn't it? Because he went up his garden path. That's what he was singing. That's what we will all be singing. Father, thank you. Thank you for the clarity of the Bible. Forgive us for our lack of clarity in thinking or preaching. Thank you for the way in which Jesus was manifestly kind and yet so patently clear. 
Help us, Lord, in both our manner and in our message uh, to enabled by the Spirit and guided by the Scriptures, follow hard after Christ. For surely in Christ alone our hope is found, and in him alone. And in his name we pray. Amen. We trust you've enjoyed this podcast. If you'd like to make a donation to support the work of Bangor Worldwide, please visit www.worldwidemission.org slash donate.